there's some evidence that suggests extremely religious homes carry those same dynamics of shame-based behavior. As you can imagine from what we talked about earlier, the rigid thinking, and if you Mm -hmm. fail, that dualistic mindset of black and white, and then I I end up somewhere in the gray, that's Mm -hmm. a problem. Um, And shame can surround those behaviors. This is the All at Once podcast for women and those who love them. We are God's image bearers, exploring ways religion has been distorted to silence the marginalized and to justify abuse. We are Christians seeking to comfort, heal, and free people from the pain caused by our own religion. We carry much, like all of humanity, all at once. I'm Kelly Browning, and to God be the glory. I am familiar with pain. Sorrow fills me as I grieve the loss of relationships over the years due to me breaking free from the mold in my political views and with my views regarding women. I am familiar with being rejected by those who claim to love you no matter what when their actions and words say that what they really mean is that they'll love you as long as you think like them. Two years ago, I publicly announced that I would be voting for a candidate that was not within the pre-approved evangelical voting bloc. The result of that announcement caused some of my closest childhood relationships to gang up against me to claim my faith was broken and that I wasn't right with God. Since then, I have been the subject of ridicule and mockery and My work on this podcast has worsened that since I began questioning the other forbidden topic, gender roles. The correct political party and gender hierarchy were ingrained in me since birth. When I no longer ascribed to those views, those that remained in them interrogated and lashed out at me. Such harsh words and actions against someone who breaks free from the mold is proof of a community seeping in rigid thinking. Rigid thinking is the inability to change or adapt and is a breeding ground for shame. Rigid communities create unsafe environments for people like me who don't fit the mold, and shame abounds in secrecy and in rigid thinking. We are starting out here to acknowledge the difficulty in taking the risk to separate yourself from the mold, to think differently from the majority, or to move away from harmful and rigid thinking. It likely has come at a great cost to you too. None of this is easy. As we go through this process of thinking differently or breaking free from the mold together on the podcast, I wanted to share some tools related to shame. So when it inevitably rears its head, we can name it and act intentionally instead of reactively. I hope that this episode empowers you to lean into your bravery and courage and helps you know what to do when shame begins to creep in and plant lies in your soul about yourself that make you believe there's something wrong with you for being different 
the truth is that you are fully known and deeply loved and celebrated just as you are. You are adored and cherished and God finds great delight in you. I'd like to share a little story with you about a time where a woman was outcast and ganged up against in the Bible by the wealthy and powerful people at that time. In John 8, an adulterous woman was brought before Jesus. The law in that time was clear and stated that women who commit adultery were to be stoned. She had clearly committed adultery and broken that law. So what did Jesus do? Did he say, yeah, the law is clear. She broke the law. Let's stone her. Make her pay for what she did. If she didn't want to be stoned, she shouldn't have committed adultery. No. He drew a line in the sand, stood with her, and told the wealthy and powerful Pharisees, who had planned to stone a woman that day, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. They dropped their stones and walked away. He intercepted their violent acts to protect her life. Anytime a line is drawn to exclude people, Jesus always moves to the side of the outcast. Jesus moved away from those in power to be with the disempowered. She was fully known, fully loved, and protected by Jesus, just as you are too. Rochelle Bridges, our guest, will help us develop shame awareness and resilience. She has her master's degree in marriage and family therapy from UHCL, and she owns her own practice, Friendswood Family Counseling. She's a certified Brene Brown Daring Way facilitator and IEQ9 accredited Enneagram practitioner. So take what is good and beneficial for you and leave what isn't. Here we go. Rochelle, thank you for being with us today. I want to kick off the interview by asking, why is our culture still rooted in 16th century Puritan values? That's a really good question. And I have thought about it for a long time because so much of my own personal experience related to the Puritan values uh, has been negative experience. Mm. And so I asked myself, what, what is it that draws people to it? What, pe- what keeps people enmeshed in it? What keeps people um, believing so wholeheartedly in it? And I would say that, that I think that if people have grown up in a family where there's a lot of chaos and there's not a lot of guiding principles leading the way for children or for people who have their own internal chaos, that it is very attractive to find something that says what is right and what is wrong and how to progress in life. So sort of some guiding principles with that. I know that that my worldview was heavily shaped in a negative way, just coming from a very conservative culture, having that emphasized in my own family of origin, also being raised in a small town of mm-hmm. 700 people. Mm-hmm. So I grew up sort of with this idea that people were always watching and waiting to see if you were going to take a misstep so that they could report that and, and it would get back and then there would be punishment from that. So my worldview has a very negative shape to it. Um, But I can imagine that if people didn't have structure in their life, that somehow they would find value in Mm -hmm. in having some guiding principles in that way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I find that interesting that it's 
I've heard, you know, that information is power, right? And so in the realm of Puritan views and the Puritan culture that we still very much so um, cling to, which is rigid thinking. And so this is the way that the rule, these are the rules. If you follow the rules and if you fit into these rules, yay, you are praised. But if you step outside that rule or if you question a rule or if you move outside of that rule in any way and someone sees it, that person then feels like they have power over you. And I'm just wondering, these rigid views and this rigid way of thinking, how, is it harmful to think rigidly? What are some scenarios that that kind of would trip us up if we continue existing in very rigid thinking and views? Well, it has been my experience, I would say, in working with a wide variety of people over the past several years in counseling. Um, there's a common theme that I see among rigid thinking, and it is a tendency to either get stuck somehow in your life by the rigid thoughts and thinking, or to really limit, severely limit the possibilities of what you might do with your life. And um, being stuck, I would say, is the one thing that is almost intolerant to people. I hear that constantly when people come in and they're talking about feeling immobilized or paralyzed and they can't move forward and they're not sure which direction to take or what step to take. Mm -hmm. And um, it's a very intolerable place to be for most people. So it can be immobilizing, it limits, and it gets people stuck. Um, I think that that one of the things that I would say is, um, in, in my own personal experience, my family had a belief that uh, girls did not follow a boy to college somewhere. It was just one of those things that we didn't do. And it showed weakness for a woman to follow a man to college. And so when it came time for me to go away for, for college, I was somewhat dating mm -hmm. who I eventually married. <laughs> and um, and he wanted us to go to a college that, that we could both go to up in Newburgh, Oregon. It was a friend school. And I could not do that because the family rule was girls do not follow. Girls mm -hmm. would be weak to follow mm -hmm. a boy off to college. And so I chose to go to a different college. And I went to the West Coast and went to college there. And he stayed behind. And because of that distance, we didn't really get to know how each other functioned in the day-to-day. -day. Mm -hmm. And consequently, we ended up getting engaged and we got married. But our first year was a tough one. We didn't know what the day in and the day out looked with each mm -hmm. other. And so that rigid thinking, it, this is just a little microcosm mm -hmm. of how it got me stuck into one way of thinking. It got me focused on something that really wasn't good. Mm -hmm. So the rigid thinking was a girl is weak mm -hmm. if she follows a boy to college. And one way to challenge that um, it, it, it is to use one of two words. One of them is the word but. So... When I think about if I'm getting stuck in a rigid thought, I will put that rigid thought or that thought down on paper. Mm -hmm. And so girls don't follow boys to college because that's weak. And then I might add the word but to it and say, mm. but sometimes it's beneficial Yeah, for a girl to follow a boy to college. Sometimes a girl knows what she's doing exactly. and, and you can trust her with her life. Yes, exactly. And then another word that helps is the word and, you know, girls don't follow boys to college because that's weakness. And 
yet sometimes it's a strength because mm-hmm. it can be beneficial to the relationship or whatever. Yeah. So that rigidness keeps us from considering the second part of that sentence. Yeah. And that's where we get limited and sometimes just stuck. When we break the rule or when we question the organized community or religion, when we only are like, wait, I'm not buying this anymore. Mm-hmm. I think that contributes a lot to our shame. So if you could just talk a little bit about why shame is just so rampant in our society. And then later we'll talk about how the church has a role in that and how all of that is connected. Sure. Yeah, I would say shame is rampant um, probably mostly because we just don't talk about it. Mm. We walk around as if it's not a part of our emotional capacity when the truth is every single one of us has shame. Mm -hmm. And so shame, the perfect conditions for it to grow are secrecy. Mm -hmm. So by not talking about it, we're actually empowering shame to grow both internally and in our society in general. And so I I think it's important just to recognize one of the very best things we can do is start having conversations about it, how it shows up, what it looks like when it shows up, where we see it in our own lives personally, and how that plays out culturally in our communities or in our church families. Um, I would say from my own personal experience, and I'm going to leave it at that because I'm not an expert in church theology or or any of that, but my own personal experience, I would say shame grew greatly. And I believe I can say I see this with my own clients in conditions where there is a critical, judgmental, and condemning attitude um, among the people, either in your relationships or in your church family, or in the culture of your community. Mm -hmm. And so whenever critical, judgmental, condemning behaviors are also combined with that rigid thinking, it sets up the conditions for shame to grow and to be rampant. Um, I'll give you just a little example, and this is a silly one, but but it's it's practical. Mm -hmm. Uh, I remember when I was about six or seven years old that I played with a lot of kids in my neighborhood who were poor and non-churched kids. And Mm -hmm. so I was exposed to a lot of things that were not churchy. Mm -hmm. And I remember because of that, that uh, one day I was outside playing by myself, doing nothing in particular. Mm -hmm. As I remember, I was just running around the yard. Mm -hmm. And for whatever reason, the word gosh slipped out of my mouth. Mm -hmm. And it terrified me that I had said that word. It, It stopped me. It literally stopped me and froze me in my tracks. I felt so remorseful and so terrible. And I remember going in and saying to my dad, Dad, I have something terrible to tell you. And and I told him that I had said, gosh, and we sat down on the couch. And he very seriously said to me, well, you know, we need to take this to the Lord. And we need to pray about this. And he will forgive you. And And so we prayed, and I don't remember anything about the prayer or anything about what he said that made me feel forgiven. I remember only that I felt ashamed Mm. that I had done something. And it seemed to me by my dad's very serious taking of that. Um, that it was a really, really terrible thing that I had done. Yeah. And that's where a lot of shame, I had enough experiences that of that over the years in my family, but also in my community because it was so small mm. of condemnation, judgment, critical mm. attitudes of 
people reporting again Mm -hmm. those missteps and that information getting out and it being a culture of just being watched constantly. And so it just emphasizes over and over until that becomes a worldview. And I would say it's greatly shaped my worldview, Mm -hmm. limited it and, and immobilized me in ways that I feel like my life wouldn't have been that way. And I also want to give a caveat. I have a really great dad and he loves Mm. God very, very much. So I feel a little sad using an example that doesn't exactly represent him well. But it was just one of those times that as a kid, that was my takeaway from that situation and um, was a small microcosm of something bigger. Yeah. Yeah. But as you were talking, I feel like it's really important to note. So in the very first episode, um, on the podcast, you can hear about how I talked about reporting a sexual assault. Mm-hmm. And okay. when you were talking, it reminded me of the feeling that I had when I was a child after yes. the assault took place. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was a feeling that, that I already knew, even as a small child, that what happened to me was only supposed to happen when you were married. Mm-hmm. And I remember okay. feeling so ashamed that I couldn't tell anyone what happened because I would be in big trouble because I didn't prevent the assault from taking, from taking place, excuse me. And I really, I knew that now. Mm -hmm. And what happened when I reported it to the police is all that shame melted away because I received Mm -hmm. the validation that, I mean, from law enforcement officials (laughs) that what happened to you was sexual assault, which is a crime yes, and is punishable in the state of Texas. And mm-hmm. that that's what happened. I mean, it, was just, it just became so clear mm-hmm. that what happened to me, I was not an active participant in. Mm-hmm. I was that's tiny. Right. But even though I knew later growing up that sexual assault is never the victim's fault, I never connected that Mm -hmm. to what happened to me as a child. I would like to also say that it is my experience that not everybody has a good experience reporting a Mm -hmm. sexual crime. And so I think it's really important um, to just validate that sometimes the opposite happens. Sometimes women are brave and they're courageous and it takes everything they have to show up and report this thing where there's so much shame attached to it. And law enforcement just feeds into it by making them feel indirectly. I mean, I've even been told sometimes they say flat out, well, you shouldn't have done that thing, or you shouldn't have been in that place, or you should have done this. You shouldn't have had that much to drink. Exactly. And and as if the victim is at fault in, in that case. And so... I just want to say to those who might be listening to the podcast and the shame didn't melt away, but it actually intensified their situation Mm -hmm. um, that 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 happens sometimes and it's not right. Not right. And it is really important to consult with a professional and get some professional opinions about what happened to you, because that also was a crime against you, even though it was law enforcement. They were not protecting and caring for you, no. and they were not doing the job they should have done on your behalf. Yes. And it's a terrible shame, literally a terrible shame Yes, when that happens to yes. somebody. The sooner you talk about even the mm-hmm. experience of reporting and the sooner you talk about all that, the sooner you, with a professional, with, with an advocate for mm-hmm. you, with, with a therapist, whoever it is that you can talk about it with, mm-hmm. um, the sooner that will 
that validation you'll receive and the sooner the shame will begin to chip away. Yes. And, and healing and can heal. come sooner. The longer you carry the burden of that, the longer it takes for most people to heal from, yeah. from that event or yeah. that series of events as it may be. Before we continue our conversation with Rochelle on shame, check out what my friend Brittany Donovan is doing through her business, Behold and Flourish. Hello, everyone. My name is Brittany Donovan, founder of Behold and Flourish, an intimate community group for women based in Houston, Texas. Our biggest desire is to create an atmosphere for women to rest, create, and grow. We long for each event to be multi-generational and believe that the collaborative uniqueness of all seasons of life have something to contribute to the table. For more information about our monthly gatherings, head to www.beholdandflourish.com. We hope to see you at our next event. Thank you, Brittany. Behold and Flourish is one of our Patreon sponsors, along with Box and Sparrow and Second Journey. Check out our website, allatonce.us, to become a monthly financial patron. The first 10 patrons to sign up at $10 or $25 a month get some swag from these beautiful female-owned businesses, along with some All at Once swag. All at Once swag, just so you know, can also be purchased separately on our website, allatonce.us. We are immensely thankful for your listenership and for your financial support. Okay, now, back to Rochelle. Where do you think shame originates? Um, I'm going to talk about it from two perspectives. Uh, one perspective is, is that, oh, in fact, I want to put it this way. I, I want to talk about the dynamics of shame first, okay. because I think one of the most helpful things is that most of us don't know what shame is. Mm. And so it is a chaotic emotion and it's a powerful one. Mm. And so I want to talk a little bit about that first and then come in with the second part of that question, if you okay. don't mind. Yeah. I would say that shame often, when we don't know what it is, shows up in a very complex way and yet also a very strange way. I may be just going about my business. I'm walking uh, down the street. I have an encounter with someone. That encounter blindsides me. I think I'm just saying hi, having a friendly exchange with somebody, but out of nowhere, all of a sudden, because of this encounter, I find that I feel like someone just cut me open and fully exposed all those parts of me, those shadows parts of me that I don't want anyone to know exist inside of me. And that sense of exposure, because I'm not just admitting to you about my shadow side, but it just happened. It just happened out of my my powerlessness and mm. my unawareness of the situation that this exposure happens and and because of that it, it creates this sense of violation mm. so that that complex blindsidedness feeling open and exposed feeling then violated from that puts us in a position where Brene Brown says that we would do typically one of three things one of them is to move toward the person in that conversation. Oh, I'm so sorry I said what I said. I never should have said that. Let me make it right. How can I make it right for you? Mm -hmm. And so we move toward them or people, please mm -hmm. try to smooth it over, make it right, make the shame go away. Mm -hmm. So that's one way to deal with it. Another thing we might do is move away mm -hmm. from the situation. Like, 
well, that really didn't feel so good. And so I think I will not be in touch with that person for a while because I need some time to kind of figure out what was that all about. Mm. I need time to heal. And sometimes we'll even put up just a little bit of a, a barrier around our heart mm. to protect us from the shame that we're feeling and pull away from somebody. And then the third way Brene Brown says is sometimes we actually use shame to shame other people. Yeah. And it's a form of getting aggressive and to get somebody to back off. And so I may actually say, oh, you think I'm an idiot. Well, let me tell you last week, remember when you Mm, and I will just go put that shame right back on you because I don't want to take it and I don't want to carry that with me. And so those dynamics, remember getting blindsided, feeling open and exposed, Mm -hmm. feeling violated, create these conditions. Mm -hmm. And you can hear how chaotic that must be. It's disorienting and unsettling. And it's all just unraveling in the span Mm -hmm. of just a few seconds is how it generally feels. And if we don't know what it is, we are sitting there in this place of chaos And so I like to tell my clients, and I'll share this with your podcast uh, audience, that one of the very best steps is to be able to name what that is, to recognize this came out of nowhere. I feel exposed. I feel violated. Oh, I know what this is. This is shame. This is what Mm -hmm. it feels like. Mm -hmm. It's very disorienting when you don't know what it is. What you'll find is as you begin to understand it and know when it's happening inside of you and you give it a name, it settles some of the chaos to the point where sometimes we can actually make a choice about how to behave and we don't go automatically into move, move toward, move away, move against, but we actually will, will stop and pause for a minute and decide, okay, what am I going to do with this kind of a Mm -hmm. thing? Mm -hmm. Um, And, and so being aware of that and then There's one little secret that I like to tell people about shame, (laughs) because when it happens, we feel so exposed Mm -hmm. and it feels like whoever we're with, or if this happens in front of our peers or at a meeting or in front of our community, that everybody sees those parts. That's just a feeling. It's a feeling of exposure that happens. And it's just a feeling the only thing anyone around us will know is what we do. Mm-hmm. So they'll notice if we, people please, they'll notice if we kind of move away and they'll notice if we move against, but they do not see all of those damaged and defective parts of us that we work really hard not to see. And sometimes just knowing that is a huge comfort yeah. and allows us to show up and be a little bit more authentically. Yeah. So I like I like to just talk about the dynamics of shame and how they get in there and what they are. And I mm-hmm. hope that you can get familiar with that so that you don't feel blindsided. Yeah. After a while, the blindsided tends to go away. So let me provide an example of um, something that often causes <laughs> shame in me. I might have an encounter with someone who I might admire a lot. Mm. And this person will kind of check in on me and say how I'm doing. And I might fumble through the convert, or at least I feel like I fumbled through the conversation Mm. a little bit. I might feel like, oh, I overshared or, oh, I didn't share enough or, oh, I was just so awkward. You're so Uh awkward, Kelly. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And I leave that encounter and here are some thoughts that might pop into that, that often pop into my head. And I know it as shame Mm -hmm. now, but then I didn't. Um, Kelly you're, you're not lovable. Mm. You're, you're so difficult. 
you're mm-hmm. not lovable. That's hard. You um, can never get it right. You're never going to be able to succeed in social mm-hmm. situations. You're never going to be able to be a public speaker. You're never going to be able to, mm-hmm. you know, all all these never statements or or, yeah. or I've always been or I've never been. And Which is rigid thinking, by rigid the way. Rigid thinking. Always and never. It's, always, it's all connected, right? <laughs> yes. And, and it's so helpful when I'm in those situations, just like you said, to name it as shame. Mm-hmm. Wait a minute. This person loves me. Mm-hmm. I know that they love me because they tell me, because they show up for me, because they just checked, initiated contact with me yes. and had a conversation with me and smiled mm-hmm. at me. And I, so I try to look, use my brain and, and look at look at the facts and, and remind myself of how I feel towards that person. I feel mm-hmm. the light. And then it kind of, it, it stops that shame spiral from happening. And when I name it and I can move away from it, and then I can still be in contact with these people who I feel like I've been really awkward with. But really, it's I've not been awkward. I've just mm-hmm. been a normal person. And yeah, and I like that you brought that up because that is the natural outcome from that type of thinking as we tend to spiral down. That's what mm-hmm. shame does. It spirals us down into kind of a dark place mm-hmm. because yeah. the thinking around it is so negative and the thinking is that shame goes all the way to our core. So mm-hmm. at the very core of who we are, we just are really rotten people. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the message and it just spirals us right down and stopping it like mm-hmm. you did. And putting it in a context is mm-hmm. the way to overcome it. Mm-hmm. And so that's, it's really a, a tribute to your growth that Thank you're able you. to recognize it and then also to stop it yeah. and then get yourself going in a new direction. Yeah. And all of that are good, helpful, flexible thinking, mm-hmm. not rigid thinking, mm-hmm. helpful shifts that get you out of that small um, stuck place and having some hope to move forward into a bigger space again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that was a great example of Thank all you. of that. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. So where does it come from? Where do these voices, these shame, this, where does it come from? Where does it originate? I would say that I have two theories. So take it with a grain of salt. These are my two <laughs> theories. Okay. But I have been a student of the Enneagram for a while. And I would say some of my learning in that realm is that there are some personality types that are more prone to shame than other personality types. And so there is a propensity, I would say, in in some personality types in and of themselves to become a person of shame or to lend themselves to situations where shame is what they take away from it, where other personality types might not in that same situation. Yeah. So I think some of that is probably built into our personalities. Um Then I also think that some people grow up in shame-based families or shame-based communities, church families, communities. Um, I think that, that, that when you get a message over and over about your shortcomings and your faults, rather than um, putting them in a context of guilt, but shame on you for those things, when those messages are, are getting clear, then, then that creates the conditions for shame to continue to grow and develop. I want to give you an example of the difference between shame and guilt because guilt is very helpful to Mm -hmm. us and shame is not helpful to us. So I, I, let's just say, for example, I am running around trying to get to work on time. I pick up all my papers. I'm dashing out the door and in my haste, I spill coffee down the front of my outfit. I've ruined it. Now I'm especially late. And if I go into shame, I will say things like, you're such a klutz. You can't do anything right. 
I can't believe anybody would even pay you to work for them. And I get into this really negative headspace that goes right to the core of who I am, telling me how defective and how flawed uh, or how broken that I am. And that is one way of dealing with that situation. But let's take the same situation, rushing around, spilling my coffee, running late. I go into guilt. I will say to myself, oh my gosh, I'm going to go to bed early tonight. I'm going to wake up 30 minutes early tomorrow because when I give myself plenty of time, I'm less likely to spill my coffee on myself in the morning. So guilt produces the hope that by making a change or two, things can have a better outcome. It's very different than shame. Shame goes to the core. It says at the core, I'm rotten and defective. And guilt says, I have options here. I just need to change my behavior. Mm -hmm. And so just being able to tease out the difference between those two, I think is very helpful Mm -hmm. in understanding shame. Mm -hmm. So shame sends the message, you are bad. Mm. And you can see why that's not a helpful message. And guilt sends the message, your behavior needs to change. Mm-hmm. Your behavior is bad. And mm-hmm. that gives us some hope that we have some resources to be able to make that change. Can we revisit the Enneagram and how that is connected to our understanding of shame? Sure. So one of the things that I would say is if you're familiar with the Enneagram, you know that there are three main triads. The twos, threes, and fours are over in the feeling triad. The five, sixes, and sevens are in the thinking triad. And the eights, nines, and ones are in the body or the gut triad. Mm -hmm. The twos, threes, and fours over in that feeling center are more likely to be impacted by shame. It's Mm -hmm. a dominant emotion for them. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure why that is the emotion that is more dominant for them than the other types, but um, there is enough evidence from from different authors that I have read to suggest that that is a dominant emotion. And so that puts them maybe a little bit more vulnerable to shame than some of the other types. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of my understanding about that. And I would say I'm a three. Mm -hmm. I'm right in the middle of that heart triad. And it definitely lines up with my experience of how shame plays a role. Um, I am married to an eight and anger is the predominant emotion, um, the eights, nines and ones. And that's that's what it is for him. Mm -hmm. I just see it played out. It's so obvious. I go to shame in a given situation. He's going to go to anger. Mm -hmm. And so there's something to those triads in the way that that uh, some of our authors and researchers ahead of us have have gained wisdom from them. There's something to it. And I think that's one of the ways that that mm-hmm. shame can kind of play its role. Then I think when it comes to going to the next level, which is being a part of a family, there are many shame-based families and addiction-based families would fall into that category. Yeah. There's a lot of shame around what's happening in the family combined with tons of secrecy. So it's the perfect conditions. To, to learn shame and act in shame. Absolutely. Life, yeah. And to hide information and mm-hmm. to keep things secret. Oh, this isn't acceptable to hide it. Oh, this isn't, this isn't socially uh, popular or accepted. Hide that. Yes. Suppress that. Yeah. Yes. That's what's learned. Even um, there's some evidence that suggests extremely religious homes carry those same Mm -hmm. dynamics of shame-based behavior. As you can imagine from what we talked about earlier, the rigid thinking, and if you Mm -hmm. fail, that dualistic mindset of black and white, and then I 
I end up somewhere in the gray. That's a problem. Yeah. Um, and shame can surround those behaviors. That that reminds me of Educated by Tara Westover. Excellent book. I highly yes. recommend it. Great um, book. I uh, devoured it in, I think, three days. But one of the, the examples that it, I thought of when you just said that was when she took, I believe, Tylenol or Advil for the first time and how she just I felt like she was poisoning her body. And she kind of we walked through her shame spiral with her when she when she talked about taking medicine for the first time, which was in college or her graduate work. I mean, it was much, much yes. late. I mean, it, most people have medicine within their first year of life. Yes. I mean, at least all of my kids have. <laughs> uh-huh. um, and and so for her, it was really helpful for me to be able to see someone else's mm-hmm. shame and see how they experienced it and it helped me identify my own a little bit easier Mm -hmm. um, and walk through it because it was although I my family was fine with medicine there were other things all families have these um dualistic um paradoxes I guess maybe or these these dualistic mindsets in certain Mm -hmm. categories and so Mm -hmm. I think part of growing up is undoing (laughs) and figuring out which part of my family constructs are going to become mine Mm-hmm. And which part are going to remain in my family of origin? Mm-hmm. And so that kind of brings me to my next question, which um, what are some ways that we can, how how are ways that we can raise up our children to be resilient to shame who aren't going to be as familiar with shame or who will be less susceptible to shame? I have two little boys and anytime I lose my temper or anytime um I, I kind of am a little bit hard on myself. Uh-huh. I think most mothers are. Yep, I haven't I heard of a mom who isn't hard on herself. Yes. Um, <laughs> and and not, one of the things I'm really mindful and sensitive to is not shaming them mm. and teaching them healthy mm-hmm. ways to deal with um, changing their behaviors instead of shaming them for yes. who they are. And so what are, what are some tips or tricks or advice that you have for us for raising up our kids? Okay. One of the things that I would say I have learned by being a therapist is that people who grew up feeling loved and value walk around in the world differently than people who didn't. Mm -hmm. And so parents who do a good job of expressing love to their children, of being affectionate with their children, with showering them with those things are already giving them gifts to deal with shame and all the other things they're going to face in their lives Mm -hmm. because they know their value and they know their worth. And so that's a very beginning point for that. And to be intentional, for parents to be intentional about expressing love and caring for their kids is so important to them. I also think it's important to give our children feedback, both positive and negative, Mm -hmm. because the way that we learn about ourselves and how the world is impacted by us is by the the feedback that we get from other people. Mm -hmm. And if it's our parents who are giving us both positive and negative feedback about ourselves, we already trust them. Mm -hmm. And so it's invaluable that they tell us things like, you know, you're really good at math. Or you have an eye for color. When you put color together, it's it's stunning what you see. Or you're really good at caring for Mm -hmm. other people. You notice when people are sad and you reach out to them. 
And we're giving them feedback about ways that they show up and have impact. And that's how they learn to know, oh, I'm really good at math or I have an artist's eye. I can see things, you know, and we're teaching them about themselves by reinforcing what we see in them. Mm -hmm. And we need negative feedback, too. So we need to know when the things that we are doing are not helpful. Mm -hmm. When we yell and scream at our friends, they're not likely to want to be around us or when we're bossing them around. And so teaching our kids uh, how to understand that that is a negative feedback and it can push people away from us. And I think the very best way is the way that you set this up Mm -hmm. by focusing on a kid's behavior rather than who they are. Mm -hmm. Talking about what the behavior was that was good. I love the way you shared your toy with your sister. Mm -hmm. You're good at sharing. Mm -hmm. Sends the message about something that the child is good at connected to a behavior. Or when you hit your sister today, you hurt your sister. That made her feel really sad. And connecting the behaviors, it's that behavior, that of of the way that you treated another person that had this bad outcome, Mm -hmm. and teaching them to distinguish that Mm -hmm. that those things are separate from one another. So I will always love you. I will always be there for you. I care about you. I'm so glad I'm your mother or I'm your father. And there are good behaviors and there are behaviors that are going to make life difficult for you. And I want you to know those too. Mm -hmm. So teasing those out and keeping them separate is so helpful for Mm -hmm. kids. And I would say one of the the main things that I like parents to know is the difference between a child's brain and a grown-up brain, Mm -hmm. because children only have half a brain Mm -hmm. and their brain thinking is more cause and effect. So I failed a math test. I must be stupid is how a kid would think. And once a kid gets to uh, puberty, Mm -hmm. they'll begin developing the prefrontal cortex of the brain. And that does not complete until the mid-20s. So it's a long time of developing the thinking and processing part of the brain. So when kids are little, I flunked a math test. Therefore, I must be stupid. But a parent who has a prefrontal cortex steps in and says, you know, I know you're not stupid. Mm -hmm. I wonder what else might have happened here. Did -hmm. you study the right things? Do you know how to multiply? You have to know that before you can divide. Mm -hmm. Were you feeling well that day? Did you sleep that night? And it opens up again. It Mm -hmm. opens up the world of possibilities to a kid that maybe I'm not just stupid. Maybe I just need to change some of my behaviors or I need to learn something else. Mm -hmm. And so that's another way that I feel like parents are invaluable in giving Mm -hmm. information to their kids. I think a lot of times parents think kids have all of that brain Mm -hmm. development and they just don't. And that's why the parental role and an adult role in any kid's life is so important to help challenge those beliefs that they're coming up with Mm -hmm. from their cause effect thinking. If you'd like to engage more with Rochelle in her work or for anything Enneagram, a type assessment, consultation, or personal Enneagram coaching, go to her website, friendswoodfamilycounseling.com. And barring more pandemic chaos, Rochelle plans on co-leading an Enneagram retreat in the fall of 2021. Keep your eyes on her website for all this and more. Thanks for listening. Before you go... I want to let you know about the amazing women who contribute to the production of the All at Once podcast. First, we have Michelle Rayborn. She is the singer and songwriter of our theme song, A New Day. 
You can find this song and more of her work anywhere you get your jams. Other contributors to the podcast include Sarah Jordan, Molly Bays, Taylor Diggs, Maddie Scott, and Samantha Gall. Thank you for your hard work to get us to this point. Also, remember to visit us on our website, allatonce.us, to become an email subscriber, a monthly financial patron, or to buy some swag. Thanks for listening. Take courage, fight for faith, and see a new day.